The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning, The Grand Charter. This is part two, Romans chapter eight, verses one through four. In our sequential exposition now of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we're back this morning in chapter 8, where we are considering now the first four verses in a brief series of sermons entitled The Grand Charter. The Grand Charter. A charter is a grant issued by a sovereign. A grant issued by a sovereign king, a sovereign ruler, that establishes the rights, the privileges of the people that live under that king's rule. So it's been said that Romans 8 is the grand charter of the Christian. Uh, It's a grand charter given to us by our sovereign that outlines for us all the blessings, all of the privileges of living under the rule of our king, Lord Jesus. Now that title taken from the Puritan uh, Thomas Jacob from his uh, 400-page commentary on the opening four verses of this uh, wonderful chapter And in part, it's taken from Matthew Henry, who said this. We have here in chapter 8 such a draft of the gospel charter, such a display of the unspeakable privileges of true believers, as may furnish us with abundant matter for joy and peace in believing, that by all these immutable things which we've been promised, which we've been given, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. If you're like me, chapter 8, over the, the extent of my Christian life, has been strong consolation. And many, many times, I'm sure of you, as you have, I've turned to chapter 8 for encouragement, for comfort, for joy, for rebuke, for exhortation. Uh, we need this chapter. I'm grateful the Lord has given us opportunity to go through it. Now, that consolation really is the theme of the Apostle Paul that's been leading us up to this point in chapter 8. A theme to which Paul has been pointing is the strong consolation, the assurance, the confidence of the Christian. The assurance, the confidence, the guaranteed hope of the one who has been justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. This is the blessed status of the one who's been justified by faith apart from works. Our justification is of faith, as Paul says, Romans chapter 4, that it might be according to grace. And it's according to grace so that that promise, the promise of the new covenant, might be sure, might be certain to all the seed, not only of those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You see the point that Paul is making. Paul wants to assure us That justification by faith makes our salvation certain to all the seed. It is according to faith, so that it might be according to grace. And it's grace, it's by grace, so that that promise is entirely of God, who is faithful to his word, having nothing to do with our works, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Paul is laboring laboring on our behalf to cultivate within us an assurance, a confidence in our right standing with God through faith. As we began our study of this text in part one, we looked at a consideration of our security and our surety in verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now notice first there, our security by way of review. There is at the present time, at the present time, no condemnation. By virtue of his justification, the Christian 
has been placed in a position, the Christian has been conferred a status in which he is afforded complete security, entire security. It's our status as justified in the sight of God that renders any condemnation from the law as entirely null and void. The law no longer has that jurisdiction over us. Justification and condemnation are mutually exclusive. And so our union with Christ Jesus, in our union, we enjoy a position of complete security. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now furthermore, thinking through that text with us from last time we were discussing it, considering the context of that statement in relationship to Romans chapter 7, Paul isn't only referring to freedom from condemnation in terms of our justification, as in freedom from guilt or freedom from the penalty due our sin, but Paul is also referring here to the freedom from condemnation that we enjoy in terms of our sanctification, as in freedom from the condemnation that was formerly associated with our ongoing enslavement to indwelling sin. As Dr. Murray has said, Paul's thought moves from from the realm of objective accomplishment, our justification, now into the realm of internal operations, our sanctification. And not only are we free from the terminal condemnation of sin's guilt, but we are free from the ongoing condemnation of sin's enslavement. There is therefore now, at the present time, in our ongoing relationship to remaining sin, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's our security. Our security. And Paul's going to convince us of that fact. Now notice second, our surety. That security, that safe harbor, is only for those who are in, in union with, Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That promised security, that Safety from condemnation is not a blessing that is enjoyed by everyone. It's for those who have been set free from the condemnation of God's law by the substitutionary of death, death of Jesus Christ for sin. Now think with me. It's for those who have been set free from the law's condemnation by the substitutionary death of Christ for sin. And it's for those who have been set free from the condemnation of sin's slavery by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ to sin once for all. Both are true. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 10. That work of the Son is then applied by a work of the Spirit in the life of a Christian, wherein we find the reason then for the blessed status that we enjoy. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Chapter 7, verse 11. Sin once took occasion by the commandment to deceive me, and by the commandment, sin killed me. To be free from the law of sin and death is to be free from the power of remaining or indwelling sin. Do you see? To be free from the power of remaining or indwelling sin is to be free from the condemnation of sin's enslavement. I was once under the governing power of sin and death. I am now under the governing power of the spirit of life. Not only delivered from the guilt of sin, but brothers and sisters, delivered from the power of sin. Amen? It's the point that Paul is making. Hallelujah, all right? That's a glorious truth. There is therefore now no condemnation. 
no condemnation due to the guilt of our sin and no condemnation due to the enslavement, our enslavement to sin. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that brings us to verse three then in our text and to the work of the Father. The work of delivering us from condemnation is a Trinitarian work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse three. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay. I've planned for us to consider these verses this morning under three headings. First, the ineffectual application of the law. Second, the effectual work of the Father. And third, the determined purpose of his work. The ineffectual application of the law, the effectual work of the Father, and the determined purpose of his work. Now notice first, the ineffectual application of the law. Paul references that ineffectual application in verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Now by law, Paul again is referring here as he has been to the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, right? The moral law of God, the work of that law written upon the heart of man. Now, what the law could not do has to be understood in terms of what God did do. That's how we understand what Paul is speaking of here. Many read this text and they go instantly to justification. And that's not entirely wrong. But we have to understand what the law could not do in terms of what the text says that God did do. What did God do in our text? Verse 3. In the sending of his own son, God condemned sin in the flesh. Do you see? So what is it, think with me now, what is it that the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh? The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. So I want you to look now at verse 3 and the ineffectual application of the law in terms of the could not and the cause. The could not and the cause. The could not, the law could not condemn sin in the flesh. The cause is because the law was weak through the flesh. Do you see? Let's begin now by defining what the law could not do. Let's define the could not. The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. Now, someone might reasonably think to themselves, I thought that all sin was condemned by the law. That's what the law does. The law condemns sin. All sin was condemned under the law. So what exactly does Paul mean when he says that the law was incapable of condemning sin in the flesh? And I would submit to you that those words in the flesh is, is, are key. As we've already established in the context by sin in the flesh, what is Paul referring to? Paul's referring to our indwelling sin. Our sin in the flesh is our remaining corruption. Our indwelling sin. The old man, even though that old man has been crucified with Jesus Christ, that old man, we have to continue to put off, don't we? In our resistance against sin, we are constantly putting off the old man. We're constantly putting off sin in the flesh. Paul refers to it in chapter 7 as that law or that principle that he perceives in his members, that 
principle or that governing or that regulating power of sin in his members that wars against the law of his mind, the principle of his mind that agrees with the law that it's holy, just, and good, that warring principle in his flesh is something that Paul has been dealing with all along. That's what Paul has been talking about, right? He's been talking about sin in the flesh. Well, in what way is it that sin in the flesh is then condemned? Dr. Murray again. The word condemn is used in the New Testament in the sense of consigning to destruction as well as of pronouncing a sentence of condemnation. You hear what Dr. Murray is saying, right? The word condemn is not only used of making a pronouncement of condemnation, but is used for carrying out the sentence. Condemnation refers not only to the sentence that is declared, but to the execution of that sentence under the law. The law certainly has the power and the authority to declare a sentence of condemnation, but the law has no power or authority to carry out that sentence. Let me give you an example of that. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. What we're looking at now is the way in which sin in the flesh is condemned. How is it that sin in the flesh is condemned? 2 Peter chapter 2. Look there at verse 1. We'll have to put our thinking caps on and put these things together in Paul's argument here, okay? Verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways, and because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, these false teachers, will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time their judgment. That word could be translated condemnation. It's the same root. Their condemnation has not been idle. They've been condemned And their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction, that's the carrying out of the sentence, right? That destruction does not slumber. There has been a declaration of condemnation against them. And the carrying out of that condemnation, the execution of their sentence has not been idle. Do you see both meanings of the word there in that word for judgment or condemnation? People tend to think, don't they? that if a judgment is not speedily executed, somehow they're safe. Because I've sinned, and there's not an immediate execution of a sentence against me, then I must be okay. And it emboldens me in my flesh to sin again. That's the way that men think. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. It is a deplorable testimony of our depravity that that's the case. We have God's word, God's truth, and yet people sin with impunity thinking God's not going to see, and they forget the flood, (laughs) right? Their condemnation, their judgment does not slumber. That judgment, that sentence is not idle, it's coming. There is, over the lost person who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is a sentence of condemnation that hangs over their head. They are, the Bible says, condemned already. What are they awaiting? They're awaiting the execution of their sentence. Do you see? Their condemnation, that execution of their sentence, does not slumber. Verse 4. 
For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, same root. A sentence has been declared, it awaits execution. And did not, verse 5, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them. There you see, that word condemned, conceived of declaring a sentence against them. A sentence was declared against Sodom and Gomorrah. God then condemned them to destruction. Literally, literally in the text, he condemned them to condemnation. It's the same word from Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Same word. And that condemnation word, that word there is conceived of as an execution of their sentence against them. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So think with me now. The word for condemnation refers not only to the declaration of a sentence, a declaration of judgment under the law, but to the actual execution of that sentence under the law. The law only has power or authority to declare God is the one who executes the sentence. Okay, back in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. The law certainly condemns sin in a declarative sense. That's one of the primary functions of the law. The law condemns sin, but what the law could not do what the law was incapable of doing, what the law is powerless to do, is to carry out that sentence of condemnation. The law couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. That only God could do. God executes a judgment. The law declares a judgment against our indwelling sin. The law declares a judgment against our remaining corruption. But God is the one who executes a judgment against that remaining sin that dwells in our flesh. He condemns sin in the flesh. He does so by sending his own son. He does so through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think with me. What was the sentence of condemnation that was executed against our remaining sin? What was it that the law was incapable of doing? What sentence did God execute against indwelling sin by sending his own son. God broke the power of sin in the life of a Christian. He broke the power of sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. Praise God. God broke the power of indwelling sin. We see the results of this in our text. We died to sin in him. Romans chapter 6 verse 2. We are no longer slaves of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We are freed from the power of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 7. Christ died to sin, to the power of sin, once for all of us. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. We are indeed dead to the power of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. We have been set free from sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. What are all those passages talking about? God condemned sin in the flesh. God carried out an execution. He executed a judgment against our remaining corruption, and he did so through his own son at the cross. At the cross of Christ, there has been a judgment executed against the power of sin, against the power of indwelling sin, and that judgment executed for all those who were in union with Jesus Christ through faith. If you put your trust in him, then his death to sin has become your death to sin. And sin will not have dominion over you. 
right? The power of sin has been crushed. God condemned sin in the flesh. We died to sin in him. The power of sin has been destroyed. The law in and of itself, the law by itself, entirely powerless, incapable to have any effect on remaining sin or indwelling sin, to have any effect on our remaining corruption. The law could not condemn sin in the flesh. The law was incapable of executing the sentence. The law could not break the power of sin over us. That's the could not, do you see? The could not. What is the cause or the reason that Paul gives? Paul says the law could not do it in that it was weak through the flesh. Paul levels the blame for the impotence of the law, not on the law itself. The law is holy, just, and good. But the blame, if you will, is leveled. The impotence, the blame for the law's impotence leveled or charged against the flesh. Charged against the flesh. What the law could not do, it was incapable of doing because of our sinful flesh. The problem lies not with the law itself. The problem lies always at the feet of sinful man. It's on this point that we refer then to the ineffectual application of the law. The ineffectual application of the law. This has great bearing on your Christian life. Not just on your justification, not just on our understanding, but how we live. Great bearing on how we live the Christian life. It is impossible for sinful men to apply the law against the power of their remaining corruption. It's impossible. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we we tend to do that all the time, don't we? It's impossible for sinful men to apply the law with any effect against their remaining corruption. We cannot think that by obeying the law of God, that somehow the law is going to accomplish what the flesh cannot accomplish. The law is powerless to break the sinner free from the shackles of his indwelling sin. The law can declare against us, right? The law declares against sin. The law's precepts, the law's commandments show us what is acceptable and what is unacceptable, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. The law has the power and the authority to prescribe, to prescribe against sin, But that's all that the law has the power to do. You cannot turn to the law and expect that you're going to, through the law, have any victory over your remaining corruption, any victory over your remaining indwelling sin. The fault lies not with the law. The fault lies with the obstinacy, the intransigence of our flesh, our remaining corruption. That sin in the flesh, it's mentioned here in in, Verse three, the sin that so easily ensnares us is like quicksand. The more that we fight against that sin by applying the law, the deeper we sink. You're in the quicksand of your sin. And the more that you apply the law, the more weight you're adding. The more that you struggle against it by applying the law, the deeper you sink into the quicksand. Sin takes opportunity by the commandment and provokes within us, aggravates within us all manner of concupiscence, all manner of evil desire. And by heaping law upon yourself, what are you doing? You're sinking yourself in the quicksand. 
due solely, that's all due to this, the sinfulness of our flesh. What a testimony of our depravity, right? The law is so far from making us righteous that its very presence actually exacerbates or aggravates our unrighteousness. It actually acts as a great weight sinking us further into the sand. So the law is incapable. The law is incapable of freeing you from the quicksand. The law is incapable of freeing us from the power or the dominion of our remaining corruption. It is weak because of the flesh. Due to indwelling sin in the flesh, the law only brings further weight. So then, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. They cannot wield the law. Here's where we're talking about the ineffectual application of the law. They cannot apply the law in such a way as to free themselves from the power of indwelling sin. They cannot apply the law in such a way as to free themselves from the, the enslavement, from their enslavement to indwelling sin. So what do we need then? If we can't turn to the law, where do we turn? We turn to the gospel, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did it. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. God condemned sin in the flesh. You want to be free from indwelling sin? You want to have victory over remaining corruption? Look to Jesus Christ. Look to the gospel. Rather than the ineffectual application of the law, consider with me the effectual work of the Father. The effectual work of the Father. What the law could not do in freeing us from the quicksand of our indwelling sin, God did by sending his own Son. What we could not do through the law to escape the deadly quicksand of our indwelling sin, God did by sending his own Son. This is where we're to look for deliverance from our sin. We look to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, the fact that, the fact that God did it cannot be overstated. Remember, that's Paul's thrust through the entirety of the letter to this point. The entirety of the letter to this point, Paul's thrust is that God did it. His theme is the assurance or the confidence of the one who has placed his trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. His theme has not been the confidence or the assurance of the one who's placed trust in himself, or placed trust in the law. We have died to the law. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our justification is by faith. It's by faith so that it might be according to grace. It is by grace so that start to finish, it would be entirely of God and none of you. So that the promises that we find in God's word, the promises of salvation, the promises of the new covenant, might be sure, might be certain, might be seen to be secure to all the seed of Abraham. I would submit to you, you, you cannot have assurance of your salvation. You cannot have any confidence or hope in future glorification unless you understand that salvation from start to finish is all of God, all of grace. If God is for us, then who can be against us? God is the one who secures our justification. And listen, God is the one who secures our sanctification. 
You think you're contributing to that work? You are a means through which God accomplishes it. But God is the one who secures our sanctification. God is the one who has secured our future glorification. And it is his plan, his purpose, his power, his work that ensures it to us. Now that being said, God has done it all by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Philippians 2 refers to Christ coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. Romans 1, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. 1 Timothy 3, he was manifested in the flesh. But here, alone in the New Testament, Paul refers to God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's interesting, isn't it? The word likeness guards his sinlessness. We can be clear about that. He didn't say God sent his own son in sinful flesh. It's not what God says, right? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That word likeness guards his sinlessness. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Scripture is clear. Holy, harmless, undefiled. So why then would Paul use this particular word? Why would Paul say that he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh? Dr. Murray again, really helpful on this text. He is concerned to show that when the father sent the son into this world of sin, of misery and of death, he sent him in a manner that brought him into the closest relation to sinful humanity that it was possible for his to come without becoming sinful himself. He sent him in the closest relationship, sent him with our, our nature, taking upon himself our flesh, but not taking upon himself our sin. Jesus Christ was sent into the world with a real human body, with a real human nature. And the father sent his own son into the world in this manner, verse three, on account of sin, in order to deal for the purpose of dealing with our sin. And he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took upon himself our flesh, not our sinful nature. He took on a human nature, was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Now specifically, in our text, Jesus Christ was sent into the world. Jesus Christ came into the world for the purpose of condemning sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ came for the purpose of executing that sentence of judgment, that sentence of condemnation that had been leveled against our indwelling sin. He came for the purpose of breaking the power of sin over those he came to save. In the infinite wisdom of God, do the immeasurable love of God, God dealt with our sin problem by sending his own son into the world, in the flesh, and there at the cross, he punished he condemned, he executed his judgment against sin in the flesh. And he did that in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see? Not just condemning sin in the flesh, but there at the cross, condemning sin, carrying out that judgment in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Peter says, it was Christ himself who bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. You see the, the purpose in that, don't you? We died 
to sins so that we might live for righteousness. That's going to become important in a moment. God condemned sin in the body of his own son. Man had sin in the flesh, and sin was condemned, condemned in the flesh, condemned in the flesh of his own son. Now, those of us who are saved then, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are brought into union with Jesus Christ, and so his death to sin becomes your death to sin. Sin was condemned in his flesh at the cross. That sin becomes condemned in your flesh. You are free from the power of indwelling sin. Praise God. So we've considered the ineffectual application of the law, the effectual work of the Father. Finally, notice third, the determined purpose of the Father's work. God condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now Paul now explains the purpose for which God sent his Son. God sent his son into the world to condemn sin in the flesh, to break the power of indwelling sin for the purpose that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now in verse four, we see that purpose explained. Then we see that purpose empowered. Explained and empowered. First, the purpose explained. There's a bit of a progress or a progression that takes place here in verse four with this understanding. Think with me now. The first way in which we might understand the meaning of this text is this. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in and by Jesus Christ. Absolutely true. The law no longer has any claim against me. The law, the law no longer has any claim against you because the law, the righteous demands of the law have been satisfied. Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life, satisfying the law's demands for righteousness, and Jesus Christ paid the penalty that the law demands against sin. In that, the penalty has been vanquished. It's extinguished. The righteous demands of the law have been satisfied. Jesus Christ obeyed the law perfectly in my place. The law demands just retribution for sin, and Christ paid my penalty. Therefore, the law's jurisdiction over me has been ended. Ended. That's Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We've died to the law. The law no longer has any jurisdiction over the Christian. Now think with me. Therefore, my brethren, Romans chapter 7, verse 4, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Through God condemning sin in his flesh at the cross, you yourselves have become dead to the law through the body of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. The result of that indescribable gift is our justification. It leads to our justification. However, what is the purpose of that in Romans chapter 7, verse 4? What is the purpose of our having died to the law? It's so that we could be married to another. To him who was raised from the dead for the purpose that, Romans chapter 7 verse 4, for the purpose that we should bear fruit to God. You see the purpose there again? Repetitively, over and over again in the scriptures, we see this purpose explained. It's amazing to me why people labor to do away with exactly what the scripture is saying here. We were saved, right? We have become dead to the law through the body of Christ so that we could be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, 
for the purpose that we should bear fruit to God. That's the purpose. We should be fruit bearers to God. For, verse 5, when we were in the flesh, sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Right Now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are to bring forth fruit, fruits of righteousness to God. We're now free to serve in a new way. We've been married to another. In the power of the Spirit, we're free to serve in a new way. Lloyd-Jones refers to imputed righteousness, which is the crediting of Christ's righteousness to us as a free gift. He refers to imputed righteousness, and then, as a consequence, or as a, a purpose of our justification, imparted righteousness. Imputed righteousness leading to imparted righteousness. The power to obey the law of God to the glory of God. This was necessary in order to condemn sin in the flesh. This had to be done. How? If God is going to, through the sending of his own son, if God is going to condemn sin in the flesh, God must first deal with our standing, as it were, under the law. God has to first deal with the law. All of this becomes necessary to what Paul is now speaking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. He had to first deliver us from the condemnation of the law. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I am, in Jesus Christ, I am free from that enslaving principle in my members that brings forth fruit to death. We've been set free from that. I was under the dominion or the power of sin in my flesh and then was set free. Think with me about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. The strength of sin is what? The law. The strength of sin is the law. So to be free from the strength of sin or to be free from the power of sin, I must be free from the condemnation of the law. The strength of sin is the condemning power or authority of the law. So in order to be free from the strength of sin or the power of sin, I have to be set free from the condemning power of the law. There's one way that that happens, one way. God has made provision for that by sending his own son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh. Christ, this is Romans chapter 8, Christ is the, this is Romans chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law. The law's jurisdiction, the law no longer has jurisdiction over me. When the law's demands against me are taken out of the way in Jesus Christ, sin is then stripped of its power. Do you see? I am dead to the law, and being dead to the law, that's Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, I am dead to the power of sin. By the death of Christ at the cross, sin is condemned, its power is destroyed. And brothers and sisters, not only is the power of sin broken, by God condemning sin in the body, in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby his death to sin becoming our death to sin. Not only is, does God condemn sin in the flesh in that way, but the sin's aggravating, sin's aggravating power, right, uh, 
concupiscence, if you will. Sin taking opportunity by the commandment to arouse or to provoke within me all manner of evil desire, that power has been broken. Doesn't have to be that way anymore. Look to Jesus Christ in faith and put off the old man with all its lusts and turn to Christ in faith for victory over sin. That power has been broken at the cross. Having been set free, you and I are married to another, namely Jesus Christ. Having been married to Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we're part of his body. He is our head. He has indwelt us with his spirit. He is at work in us by his spirit in power to do what? To bear fruit to God. That power at work in us, the very power with which God raised him from the dead is now the power by his spirit that is work at work in us who believe to bear fruit to God so that for the purpose that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in me. You see, it's not only that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us because of our justification, Jesus Christ having fulfilled it for us, but do his sacrifice, do his penalty-paying sacrifice, his substitution at the cross on our behalf, the power of sin has been broken. And not only is that, require, that righteous requirement of the law fulfilled by Jesus Christ in our place, now, by his spirit, he enables us to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in him. Augustine once said this, the law was given that grace may be sought. The law was our tutor to drive us to Christ. Right? The law was given that grace may be sought and grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. That grace, which has appeared to all men, teaches us to deny ungodly lusts. We're given power by his spirit to obey him. In other words, the law, the law was our tutor to drive us fleeing to Jesus Christ where we might be saved by grace. Having been justified, having been reconciled to God, that same grace that once forgave us of all our sin, lavished upon us the gift of eternal life, now that same grace works within us to enable us as beneficiaries of grace to obey God, to obey the law of God, so that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, it's a fuller understanding, really, of what Paul is saying there in verse 4. A right understanding of the statement that opens verse 4 really has to do with its connection to the statement that closes verse 4. Namely, it's fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How is it fulfilled? By walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. You see, he's talking about obeying the law of God. In other words, it's walking according to the Spirit that empowers or enables a fulfilling of the righteous requirement of the law in us and by us. Paul is speaking experientially. There's no other way to say it, brothers and sisters, but we have power to obey the law. We have power to obey God. Sin's penalty has been paid in full. Take it to the bank. Sin's power, amen. Sin's power has been broken you are no longer enslaved to it. You no longer, it's lackey. Sin's power has been broken. Take it to the bank. 
turn to Jesus Christ in faith, trust him for those promises, and now live for righteousness. Do not present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. We have the power experientially to live the Christian life and to overcome sin. It's overcome through faith. Now, a lot of the Christian life, you would understand this, I'm sure, is learning how to do that. It's learning how to live, um, embracing and apprehending these truths, like coming to, to, to trust that this is true of you. This is true of me. This is what God has done. I have this gift. This blessed status has been conferred upon me. I have been set free from the penalty of the law. I've been set free from the dominion of sin. I can, in faith, overcome sin. Sin will not have dominion over me. The Christian life is learning how to live and to walk in and embrace an apprehension of those glorious truths. Learning how to fight, if you will. Learning how to resist. And to do so with faith. Not by piling law upon yourself. Or putting yourself back under the condemnation of the law. And have the law sink you further into the quicksand. But realizing the quicksand in which you are in. And crying out to Christ for the gospel. To pull you out. Do you see? Paul has been referring to this very same concept. Since chapter 6. Since chapter 5. Chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also, here's the purpose, we also should walk in newness of life. The purpose of our union with Jesus Christ is so that we would walk in newness of life. How do we do that? We do that in the power of his spirit by faith. How do we do that? Do we do that by applying more law? No, that was the, that was the error of the Galatians. Having set out by the Spirit, are you now going to turn to the flesh to overcome? <laughs> no. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The purpose of crucifying the old man is so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 13, we're to present our members as instruments of righteousness. Verse 16, we're to be slaves of obedience leading to righteousness. Obedience to what? To the law of God. It makes no sense to me why there is this full court press among many in evangelicalism today to do away with the law of God, as if the law of God in Jesus Christ has been completely set aside. The moral law of God exists because it's a transcript of God's character and communicates his communicates his character to us, so to speak, so that we know how we are to live for him. Having been set free from sin, verse 18, we become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Chapter 7, verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the flesh of Jesus Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead for the purpose that we should bear fruit to God. Paul is essentially saying the very same thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Jesus Christ has set us free from the power of indwelling sin for the purpose that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, the purpose to have been achieved 
from the work of Christ on our behalf was not only, think with me now, was not only the removal of sin's guilt, not only our justification, but also the destruction, the condemnation of sin's power, so that the requirements of God's law might be fulfilled in us, both legally, because of Jesus Christ, and experientially, as we seek to live for him. The power that we need to stay out of the quicksand, the power that we need to live the Christian life, the power that we need to mortify the flesh, to put to death the deeds of the body, to put off the old man, to put on the new man, it's not found within you. The power to do that is not found with the law of God. It was weak through the flesh. Rather rests with the spirit of God. Therefore, Paul says, we are not to walk according to the flesh any longer. We're not to walk in the power of the flesh, is what that's referring to. But rather, we're to walk according to the spirit. We're to walk, live in the power of the spirit. Thank the Lord for the spirit of God. I want to speak more about that um, next time. For lack of time this morning, we'll take that up the next time we're together. What does this mean for us practically, brothers and sisters, in our Christian life? We're to look to Jesus Christ in faith. If you've turned to Christ in faith and these things are true of you, these things are matters of faith. You're to take the word of God. You're to apply the word of God, those promises, what has been done. You're to take that into your, and apply it to yourself. Now think with me, in order to apply that to yourself in the fullness of which God intends and for the efficacy <laughs> through it that God intends, you have to understand what Paul is saying. We've got, to, we've got to understand what the text is saying, what has been done for us, what is true based upon what Christ has done at the cross, and taking that truth, taking those truths, what God has done, what Jesus Christ has done for us in our place, apply those truths to living for the Lord Jesus Christ so that when you're faced with sin, when you're faced with sin, you look to the assurances that we have from God's word. And you fight and you resist, just as Paul told us to do in Romans chapter 6. You apply these promises, you apply these truths, and you fight against sin. You think, you meditate upon them, you take them into your bosom. <laughs> you know, you, you sleep with them, and you eat with them, and you drink with them, and you live with them. You apply them in your heart and mind, and you fight against sin by faith in Jesus Christ for these promises. Lord, I believe I have reckoned myself dead to sin. Why are you reckoning yourself dead, dead to sin? Based upon these truths, based upon what you have said in your word, I am dead indeed to sin. Based upon that truth then, you render a judgment. I will not present the instruments of my body, my members, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. I will not. And you put off. And I will because I am alive to God in Christ and the power of sin has been broken. I will turn to Jesus Christ in faith and I will put on the new man. I will present the instruments of my, my members as instruments of righteousness to God. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's all of this truth by which you then render a judgment and you act upon that judgment. You believe and therefore you live. Do you see? I mentioned a minute ago the Galatians. Listen to this from Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, Paul says, who has bewitched you 
that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And when Paul says that, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified, I believe that Paul intends there all of the implications of that sacrifice. This is what Paul has been dealing with. Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8. The implication of Christ's substitutionary death for us. Having that portrayed, as it were, on the pages of Scripture before our eyes, Paul asks, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What would you say? By the hearing of faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Not apart, or not according to the law, not by works of the law, not by my own works, by faith. And it's by faith so that it might be according to grace, so that it might be sure. If it has anything to do with me, I'm doomed. But it's sure because it's all of grace. It's all of God. So this I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? We receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith. Are you then, verse 3, so foolish, so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Let me ask you, and I ask this question because this is true of me. (laughs) Maybe I make it more of a statement than a question. When I, when the Lord first saved me, um, and I, as uh, any Christian uh, is, by the Spirit of God, wrecked over my sin, wrecked over my sin, and I am battling, and I am battling, and I am battling. I'm a new Christian, and I don't really know how to battle yet. And I know what the law says, and I'm applying law, and I'm applying law, and I'm applying law. What's happening to me? I'm sinking in the quicksand. And I feel as though experientially that that quicksand has such a grip on me, I will never be free from it. I'll never be extricated from it, right? We have to learn how it is that we're to fight. Are we to fight? Are we to resist in the strength of our flesh? Am I to try harder and try? Yes. (laughs) How are we to try hard? In the power of the spirit, not in the power of the flesh. Try harder by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in his strength, trusting in his supply to help you and labor, fight, resist against sin. Um, Paul says that uh, you've not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed. And so what does that imply? Eh, you should be resisting to the point of bloodshed if it takes that, right? We need to keep resisting. We don't, there's not a point at which the, the limit of our resistance is to end. And we can say, I've resisted enough. Right? You can't say that. Right? This I only want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish then, having become by the Spirit, that you're now being made perfect by the flesh? Don't put yourself back under the condemnation of the law. Don't think that you can wield the law and effectually apply the law to extricate yourself from the quicksand. You cannot do it. Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. If you presume to live your Christian life that way, Paul would associate you with these foolish Galatians who are now, having, having professed to have received the Spirit by the hearing of faith, are now attempting to live their Christian life in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, we walk by faith, not by sight. We cannot extricate ourselves from the quicksand of our indwelling sin. God 
has condemned sin in the flesh so that by the Spirit of God we may obey the righteous requirements of the law. We're going to do that in the power of the Spirit through faith. Embrace these. Learn these promises. Learn these truths. Let them meditate on them. Think on them. Continue to meditate on them until they become clear, until the light bulb goes off in your head and in your heart and in your mind, right? Until that light bulb goes off. Grasp that in faith. Apply those truths to your heart and mind and then live for Jesus Christ in faith, resisting against sin. Turn to him. He'll give us power. He gives us the supply to overcome sin. Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, not the least of which is your new birth, right? A new heart within you. Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or does he do it by the hearing of faith? Brothers and sisters, he does it by the hearing of faith. Let us press on in faith. Paul is laboring to assure us that our justification by faith, apart from works of the law, is sure and is certain. It is guaranteed by God who cannot lie, and he is faithful. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this word, Lord, these encouraging words to help us live the Christian life. Thank you, Lord, for the indescribable gift of sending your own son to condemn sin in the flesh, not only having fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in our place by living a perfect, sinless life and by bearing the punishment of the law that we rightly deserved, but also, Lord, uh, condemning sin in the flesh that we, having died to sin in him, having been married to him, having been indwelt by his spirit, having been brought into vital union with him, that we might ourselves now, in the power of the spirit through faith, obey the righteous requirements of the law ourselves as we seek to live for him. Help us, Lord, to battle in faith. Help us, Lord, to think clearly about these things, embracing these truths in faith, and supply us with the strength and the power that we need to live for you. Teach us, Lord, how to fight. May it be for your glory, Lord, and may it be for our continued sanctification, sanctify us by your truth, Lord. Your word is truth. Help us to live the Christian life in power by your spirit. And Lord, in that, bolster our confidence, bolster our assurance. In doing so, Lord, increase the fullness of our joy, our love and our gratitude for you, our devotion to you, our love for one another. Encourage us, Lord, with these things, we pray. For the glory of your name, for the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ, for our own eternal good, we pray these things in his name. Amen.